Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Hey, um, thank you for um, your engagement. Um, This series, we're up to part three today, and I've had a lot of really, really positive feedback, so thank you for that. The series is called Encountering God, looking at the ways that we encounter God as we we discover in His Word. And we started the first two parts of this series by looking at the huge topic of God's love, uh, which uh, could be a whole sermon series in itself, but just wanted to tap into how we actually encounter God's love personally. Today, I'm really tapping into an absolutely essential ingredient of us uh, really encountering God in a significant way. And it's a huge topic. And I want to first of all read from Romans 1 and 17, which says, For the gospel reveals... How God puts people right with himself, it is through faith from beginning to end. As the scripture says, the person who is put right with God through faith shall live. A word used there twice, absolutely critical if we are to encounter God personally, and it is the word faith, the issue of faith. Today, I'm going to revisit a message that I've shared a few times over the 20-year history of this church because it is a really, really important message. Uh, So forgive me if you've heard this before, but it never hurts to review. But this topic of faith is absolutely critical if we want to encounter God. And so today, I want to talk about faith. I think all of us understand, perhaps, that the essence of Christian living and Christian belief, the essence of that is faith. We respond to God in faith. So today I want to ask a really, really basic question, and that is this, what is faith? Jesus said in John 14 and 12, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. So if you and I, as Christ followers, if, if we want to live the way that Jesus lived, we've got to understand what it means to have faith in him. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Faith is one of the key words in the New Testament. You cannot read the New Testament without realising that the whole of the Christian life operates on the basis of faith. We're told that we are cleansed by faith, we are justified by faith, we're saved by faith, which means if you're going to become a Christian, it's on the basis of faith. But having become a Christian by faith, It then tells us that we are to walk by faith, we're to live by faith, we're to be sanctified by faith, we're to overcome the world by faith. We are to ask in faith, 
We have access to God by faith. We draw near in full assurance of faith. They are all quotes from the New Testament. So having become a Christian by faith, we've got to realise that the only way that we can be the Christian that we have become is by faith. So much so that the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Tells us two things about faith. Number one, it's really important. Every part of the Christian life operates on the basis of faith. Secondly, if I have a Christian life that just doesn't seem to work, it just seems hard going. The problem most likely has to do with my lack of the exercise of faith because every part of the Christian life operates on the basis of faith. None of that answers the question, what is faith? So let's try to define it. Let's first of all try to define it negatively by understanding what it's not because there's lots of really weird, fanciful, crazy ideas floating around about what the nature of faith is. And sadly, that is even in the case in the church today. And a lot of it borders on superstition. Some people seem to believe that faith is some kind of mystical power. And if you just close your eyes and really, really, really believe that something is true, your believing it will have the effect of making it true. Heard the story of a guy who was attending a conference. It was actually in England and it was pouring down rain. And he's walking from the car park up to the conference centre absolutely bucketing down and he's hurrying and he catches up to a couple that are carrying this big golfing umbrella and he said do you mind if I walk with you and they said no no that's fine so here they are huddled under this big umbrella walking up to the conference center to make conversation the guy says Gee, it's a miserable day today isn't it to which the woman replied don't say that he said why not she said, you should say it's going to be a beautiful day today. He said, but it isn't. She said, you should say it's going to be a beautiful day. You, you should say that the, the, the clouds are going to blow away and the sun will shine. And he says, but it's not. It's pouring down rain. The forecast says it's going to be raining all week. And she said, but you should say that it's going to stop raining. You should say that the clouds are going to blow away. You should say that the sun's going to shine. And he said, why? And she said, because that's faith. Friends, that's not faith, that's stupidity. You can stand in a rainstorm and say what you like to the clouds and they will pay absolutely no attention to you. But some Christians are just working themselves into a sweat, trying to believe things into being. They're trying to believe that black is white. And we've got to understand that faith is not some kind of mystical power that we possess where if you believe something strong enough, you're going to make it happen. Now, other people seem to feel that faith is a substitute for facts. 
We all like facts. We're secure in our facts. Facts provide some certainty. But if you get to the end of your facts, that's where you need faith. And they think that faith is believing what you can't prove and it's leaping into the dark and, and, and believing it anyway. Now, it's true as Christians, we can't prove God in a, an objective way. I can't present you with a mathematical equation that says this plus this plus this multiplied by this equals God and you say, oh, wow, so it does. That's really cool. Thank you for that information. I can't prove God to you in that way, in an objective way. But as a definition of faith, to say that faith is what you need when you don't have any facts, it's totally inadequate. Faith is not a substitute for facts. Faith is not a substitute for facts, something that you employ when you don't have any facts left. Facts are absolutely necessary to the exercise of faith for the simple reason that faith has to be in something. You can't just have faith on its own. Faith has to have an object. Faith has to be in something. It's kind of like uh, love. You can't just be in love. If you see a teenage girl skipping down the street, singing a song, cheesy grin on her face, her eyes are all glassy and she's just so happy. And you say, hey, what's going on? You seem so happy. And she says, oh, I'm in love. And you say, that's awesome. Who are we in love with? Oh, nobody. I'm just in love. Now, you can't be in love. Love doesn't exist other than in relationship to an object. It might be a teddy bear. It might be a set of golf clubs or a car. It might be another person. But love does not exist other than in relationship to an object. And friends, neither does faith. Faith doesn't stand on its own. Faith has to be in something. And it is the object in which you place your faith that determines whether your faith is the real deal or not. It is the object in which you place your faith that determines the validity of your faith. Just imagine I had all the faith in the world and I'm just a faith-filled person. And I bump in the highlands in the middle of winter and there's a, a little creek there and it's kind of frozen over. That's just a little tiny thin bit of ice on the top of the water. I can have all the faith in the world that I'm going to cross the other side and I can step onto that thin ice. What's going to happen? I will sink by faith. Why? Was it the amount of faith that I had that was the problem? No, it wasn't. It was the object in which I placed my faith that was the problem. And all the faith in the world will not make up for, for thin ice. But I could be in Alaska somewhere needing to cross a lake that has been frozen over for six months. And the, and the, the, the ice is a meter and a half thick. And I can have the tiniest little bit of faith. I'm absolutely terrified, but I've got to get to the other side. And I even 
tie a rope around my waist and tie it off to the nearest tree. And I nervously and carefully just step onto that ice. What's going to happen? I will cross to the other side. Why? Because my faith was greater? Absolutely not. But the object in which I placed my faith was greater. Because your faith is only as valid as the object in which you place it. I hope that makes sense. My faith and the evidence of my faith is not found in what I do for the object. The evidence of my faith is that I am allowing the object into which I have placed my faith to actually do something for me. Because your faith is only valid as you allow the object in which you have placed your faith to do something for you. I hope this makes sense. Most of you would have come by car this morning. When you went out to get in your car, you put your faith in the car. And you put your faith in the car. And because you put your faith in the car, what happens? The car takes you down the road. Or if you fly in a plane, you're putting your faith in the plane for the plane to do something for you to get you to your destination. It flies you through the air. You didn't do anything for the plane. In fact, if you're anything like me, you'll be asleep before it even takes off. But the plane, because I place my faith in it, the plane flies through the air at 600 miles an hour at 33,000 feet. So if you put your faith in a plane, or if you put your faith in a car, your faith in those objects allows those objects to do something for you. So what happens when you put your faith in God? God does something. That's how we become a Christian. We became a Christian. The Bible says we are saved by faith. Which means that when we came to Christ, we recognize that we've got a problem. And that problem is way beyond my ability to solve it. And we say, God... I realize I'm a sinner. I can't get rid of my sin. I realize there is nothing that I can do to create eternal life or to earn eternal life. But you allowed your son Jesus to die for my sin that I might be forgiven. So Father, on the basis of the sacrifice that Jesus made, would you please forgive me? And the good news is he does. That's how we became a Christian. We became a Christian by faith. And I think most of us understand that and accept that. Now, while we understand that the way we became a Christian is by faith, too many Christians then fail to realize that the only way that we can live the Christian life is by faith. Only Jesus can save me. And only Jesus can guide me and enable me and empower me to live the Christian life. But unfortunately, living by faith is a term evangelicals have hijacked to describe somebody who doesn't get paid for what they do in ministry. And I heard about a pastor who actually challenged that notion one day when a 
young guy came to him and approached him and he said, uh, hey, do you live by faith? And the pastor said, yes, I do. And he said, what about you? Do you live by faith? And the guy said, no, I've got a job. And the pastor said, I, I actually didn't ask you about your job. I asked you about your faith. And the young guy says, the young guy says no, actually, I asked you first. And what I meant was, do you get paid for what you do or don't you? And the pastor said, actually, that's not what you asked me. You asked me if I lived by faith. And living by faith in the Bible has absolutely nothing to do with where I get my money from. Living by faith is exclusively about my dependency upon God. Because as we've already looked at in Romans 14, whatever is not of faith is sin. If I'm not living by faith... I'm living in sin. That doesn't mean I'm running off with my neighbor's wife or running off with the offering on a Sunday. To be living in sin simply means to be living in independence of God instead of living in total dependence on God. And that's why it's so important for us to understand this. Because if you put your faith in a car, listen to this, you begin to do what the car does. You begin to travel down the road at 100 kilometers an hour. If you put your faith in a plane, you begin to do what the plane does. You begin to fly through the air at 33,000 feet at 600 miles an hour. And that's exactly what the nature of faith is. And that's why when Jesus said, if you put your faith in me, what will happen? You will do what I do. John 14 and 12, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. In the same way that if you put your faith in a car, you begin to do what the car does. Because it's not you doing something for the car or for Jesus. It is now realising that the whole of the Christian life is Jesus by His Holy Spirit doing something in you and through you. And in exactly the same way, friends, and this is so liberating, we can live every single day saying, Lord... I cannot live the Christian life, but you can. And I just say, God, by your Holy Spirit, live the life of Jesus through me. I thank you by your Holy Spirit, you live in me. You, you don't simply give me strength. You are my strength. You are my life. And many people fail to understand this. Many people, they come to Jesus and then they think, now the hard work begins. And it's all up to me to try and do my best to live for Him. And they try really, 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 really hard to stay on track. And then they often fail. And then they find themselves down the front of a meeting, rededicating their lives to Jesus. And they try really, 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 really hard and then they fail and then they find themselves down the front of the meeting rededicating their rededication. And they try really, I'm going to try even harder this time, really, really, really hard. And then they fail and they're down the front of a meeting rededicating their rededicated rededication. And that's the pattern. Friends, the Bible never tells me to dedicate myself to God. The Bible tells me to die to myself. Why? So that the life of Jesus might be alive in me by the Holy Spirit. Because the only one who can live the Christian life is Jesus himself. 
In Galatians 3 and 1, Paul is writing to a group of friends, church in Galatia. And he starts by saying, you foolish Galatians, which is not a nice way to start a letter to your friends. But in verse 2, he says, I would like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? So he's saying, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law, that is by keeping the rules, or did you receive the Spirit by believing, that is by faith? So what's the answer to that question? Well, let's do a survey here this morning. Put up your hand if you receive the Spirit by keeping a bunch of rules. Okay, put up your hand if you receive the Spirit by faith, by believing. Oh, very good. You're awake. <laughs> now, interestingly, the Galatians already knew the answer to that question. Because Paul had just told them six verses earlier in Galatians 2 and 16. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So they know the answer to the question. You're saved by the law. You're saved by believing. But then he says in verse 3 of chapter 3, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? I hope you're getting this. To paraphrase, he's saying, you fools, you received the Spirit by faith, but having received the Spirit by faith, you're now trying to live the life, the Christian life by human effort. And you can no more live the Christian life by human effort than you can become a Christian by human effort. A lot of Christians don't seem to understand this. We know we cannot become a Christian by human effort, but I think the whole point now as a Christian is that we have to do our best to live for Jesus. And friends, it'll never work. It'll never work. In verse 6, Paul says, consider Abraham. Abraham is a really good example of this. When Abraham was an old man, 75 years of age, God said to him, Abraham, look up into the sky. How many stars are there? We're not told his answer, but he probably said lots. And he said, now consider the grains of sand on the seashore, Abraham. How many grains of sand do you think there are on the seashore? Again, we're not told his answer, but he probably said lots and lots. And God says to Abraham, you are going to have as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand along the seashore. Your wife is going to give birth to a son and from that son will come a nation and that nation will bless the world. And here is a promise to Abraham, 75 years of age, and his wife, Sarah, who was 65 years of age. But it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Abraham started out with the right attitude. God, from every human perspective, this seems impossible, but I trust you and I believe it. Then he had to go home and tell Sarah. And I would love to have been a fly on the wall with that conversation. Because the Bible is not terribly complimentary about either Abraham nor Sarah. Twice it says of Abraham, and he is good as dead. And of Sarah, she obviously uh, wasn't a healthy 65-year-old. It says she was worn out. Now, she had no kids. I'm not sure why, but anyway... 
And I can imagine Abraham coming home as good as dead and there's old worn out Sarah sitting in the bean bag. And Abraham comes in and says, Sarah, yes, Abraham. He said, uh, Sarah, God spoke to me today. Oh, that's interesting, Abraham. And what did he say? Um, he said he's going to give us something. Oh, that's interesting, Abraham. What did he say he's going to give us? He said, you won't believe it. It starts with B. It's not another bean bag, is it? <laughs> no, Sarah, he's going to give us a baby. And it says, Sarah believed him. Wow. And they waited and they waited and they waited. One year goes by, two years goes by, five years goes by, ten years goes by and still there is no baby. Now Abraham is 85 years of age, even deader. Sarah is 75 years of age, even more worn out and there's no baby. And in Genesis 16, you can read it properly, but I'll paraphrase this morning. After 10 years of waiting, there's no baby. And Sarah may have said to Abraham, Abraham, did you tell me that God told you that we were going to have a baby? Well, well, yes, he did, Sarah. Well, Abraham, it's been 10 years. Where's the baby? And Abraham in his frustration may have said, well, I don't know, Sarah. Maybe God didn't realise how worn out you were. <laughs> to which she may have replied, well, maybe God didn't realise how dead you are, Abraham. But whatever the problem, there is the promise of God ringing in their ears and still there is no baby. So here's what they did. They took matters into their own hands and they dedicated themselves to do the will of God. And it was Sarah's suggestion. It was a part of the culture at the time. There is this nice young Egyptian maid, Hagar, in the house. Sarah why don't you take Hagar as your wife and have the baby through her? And the Bible tells us Hagar conceived Abraham's baby. She gave birth to him and called him Ishmael. And Abraham must have been so excited. Oh God, I'm so excited. I'm so thankful. Here is the baby that you were promised. Forgive me. I'm so sorry that I didn't think of Hagar before. Now when Ishmael was born... Abraham was 86. When Ishmael was 13, Abraham was 99 years of age and God spoke to him again. After 24 years, God spoke to him. Abraham, yes, God. Do you remember that I told you that your wife would give birth to a son? Yes, God, I remember that. Well, this time next year, your wife will give birth to your son. Uh, hang on, God. We've already got him. He's 13. He's outside playing footy. But Genesis 21 tells us that Sarah gave birth on the very day that God had said. Now, Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael, the teenager, and Isaac, the baby. And interestingly, as you read through this passage, there's an element where God doesn't recognize Ishmael. Now, he gives to him the dignity he affords to every human being. In fact, he made all kinds of promises to Ishmael and his descendants. But if you read through Genesis 22, you will discover in the Word of God a deliberate mistake. And it's in the context of when God challenges Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. 
there's a deliberate mistake. Genesis 22 and 2. Then God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What's the deliberate mistake? Take your son, your only son. And Abraham could have interrupted and said, Hang on, God, sorry, you made a mistake. You called Isaac my only son. He's not my only son. I have two sons. Now, God knew that. So why did God call Isaac Abraham's only son? Well, if we go back to Galatians, it actually gives us a little bit of a clue because it tells us in verse 22 of chapter 4, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman Hagar and the other by the free woman Sarah. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. Let's understand that. It says of Hagar and Ishmael that he was born in the ordinary way, which meant when the town gossips got together down at the supermarket and they said, have you heard there's a baby in Abraham's house? I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Who's the mother? Hagar. Wow. It's juicy gossip, but that's all it is. But it says that the son born to the free woman, born to Sarah, Isaac, was born as the result of a promise, which meant when the town gossips got together at the supermarket, they said, have you heard there's another baby? And Abraham said, another baby? Who's the mother this time? Sarah. No, 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 not who's the grandmother, who's the mother? It's Sarah. What's the explanation? God did something. God did something as the result of a promise. So the explanation for Ishmael is that Abraham did did something. The explanation for Isaac is that God did something. And the whole point of the book of Galatians is to explain that we do not live by the law. But here is Ishmael born as the result of Abraham and Sarah trying to do their best to live for God, living by the law. And Hagar is a picture of man doing his best, producing Ishmael. But Sarah and Isaac is a picture of God doing something for Abraham. And friends, if your Christian life and my Christian life can be explained in terms of what I can do for God, then it may be evangelical religion, but that's all it is. It's me doing stuff for God. But if the only explanation for our lives is that God is doing something in us, that is the real thing. That's what I want. Amen. That's why this is so liberating. We've got to understand this, that we can begin to successfully live the Christian life when we realize that we can't, but Jesus can. That by his Holy Spirit, he comes to live inside of us. And as we allow him, he lives the Christian life through us. And our response to him is a response of faith, that is of dependency upon him. In the way that if you put your faith in a car, you begin to do what the car does. You get on the road at 100 kilometers an hour. Or if you put your faith in a plane, you begin to do what the plane does. You fly through the air. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you will begin to behave like Christ. I'm going to invite the team to come back. I deliberately inserted the term at the start of this message by calling us followers.
followers of Jesus. I did that deliberately because it's not actually a term that I employ often because there's an element of that that is at odds with this message. You see, I'm not a follower of Christ. I'm not following behind him. I'm not merely trying to imitate him. Jesus is in me. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. You're not a step behind him trying to second guess him. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Just as Jesus was in his father and his father was in him. And friends, this truth is so incredibly liberating. John 14 and 12, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing because the explanation for your life will not be what you do for Him, but what Jesus is doing in and through you. And Jesus seems to hint at this in Matthew 5 and 16. He says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now we're familiar with it, so we don't pause to think that it's actually phrased rather unusually. Why do our good deeds glorify God? Friends, it's because the only explanation for your good works, for your good deeds, is that God is doing something in you and through you. Friends, we're not called to try and do our best for God. What we've got to learn is to live in humble dependence upon Him every moment of every day. Now, of course, this does not mean that we sit around doing nothing. There are key disciplines in the Christian life, things that will enable us to live by faith and to be fruitful. But that's not the point of this message today. The point is that the strength, the power and the energy is not yours. It comes from Christ living in you. And I think one of the biggest problems in the Christian church today is the same as the problems we read in the church in Galatia and Galatians 3. And that is we're saved by faith and we get that and we're grateful for that. But by and large, we're trying to live the Christian life by human effort. And we wonder why often it feels like we're trying to push a bus up a hill. Friends, the good news is you don't need to push a bus up a hill. There's an engine in the bus. And the engine is the life of Christ, His Holy Spirit, who is in us. The Holy Spirit, who is our strength.